aka Strangely Literal. And I'm Alan. And this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's readings. Verse 1 is from the Book of Laura. When you die, you rot. Physics doesn't take Sundays off. There's nothing to believe. Verse 2 is from the Book of Anubis. Death is not a debate. How many do you think have come before you with promises and threats and offers of gold, glory, love? Now you may be seated. This week, we watched American Gods Episode 4, Get Gone. So what did you think, Alan? This is an amazing episode of television, in my opinion. Uh, I think this is going to earn the show an Emmy. I think... Emily Browning should get a Best Actress Emmy for this, at the very least. Uh-huh. It's an amazing piece of television. It's one of the best episodes of television I've ever seen in my life. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? <laughs> uh, I definitely loved it. I don't know if I was as hot on it as you were, but I thought it was great. I love that we got a separate episode that just focuses on Laura's story so far and kind of catches her up to the rest of what's happening. And I feel like After watching this episode, I finally understand her as a character and feel connected to her as a character. And of course, we get the return of Betty Gilpin as Audrey. And anytime that Audrey is on screen, I am just so unbelievably happy. So (laughs) (laughs) She was great. Before we get started, let's talk about this week's creators. We have a new director this week. Yay! I have something here to say. This week's episode was directed by Guillermo Navarro. And he's directed television shows like Luke Cage and Hannibal, but he's actually best known as a cinematographer. And he's worked on a lot of films, including Pan's Labyrinth, Jackie Brown, and Stuart Little. But the writing team is the same as last week and all the weeks before. Showrunners Brian Fuller and Michael Green co-wrote this episode again. So let's recap what happened this week. Laura is a listless blackjack dealer who lives alone and feels like a failure. She deals a hand to the scam artist Shadow and warns him that he isn't talented enough to rob a casino. Shadow falls in love with her, and despite getting married, Laura is still missing something. She wants a bigger life. So she makes the perfect plan to rob the casino, which lands Shadow in jail. Feeling lonely and guilty, Laura starts an affair with Robbie and tries to break it off two days before Shadow is released. Instead, She and Robbie are killed in a car accident. Anubis is ready to condemn her spirit to eternal darkness when she suddenly returns to her body. She climbs out of her grave and finds Shadow hanging from a tree, surrounded by the minions of the Technical Boy. She saves him, but injures herself. After a touching reunion with Audrey, Laura runs into Anubis again, this time with his companion, Mr. Ibis. Mr. Ibis repairs her body, and they send her to wait for Shadow. So I'm curious what you think about Shadow and Laura's relationship and their meet-cute in this episode. Meet-cute is a 60-year-old piece of writer's jargon I would like to unpack for our audience real quick. Okay, yeah, good point. A meet-cute is a scene where the primary love interests of the stories meet for the first time, and it's called a meet-cute because they both meet, and the scene is usually humorous or cute. But I think at this point, the word meet-cute is basically just used to say 
it's the scene where our love interests meet for the first time. Yeah. It's not necessarily cute anymore. I think this is cute. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's kind of cute, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I want to keep us in this headspace, though, where we're talking about um, writing craft, because I think that this scene really bears some scrutiny. It is exceptional in how well it's written. Uh, We get this whole thing where we see Laura dealing at the table. She is clearly unhappy and Shadow is so cocky and self-satisfied and oblivious. And Laura is all over it, right? Mm -hmm. She sees everything he's doing. He thinks he's so slick. She sees the, she sees everything and she's seeing it better than the cameras, better than the pit bosses. So what we're getting here is a lot of Laura's capability, her intelligence, And uh, we're also seeing where her loyalties lie. She's not calling the pit boss right over and getting this guy in trouble. Yeah, I think it's also an introduction to her characterization as being just totally brutally honest. And I kind of love that about her. Yeah, exactly. She's not, yeah, when she tells Shadow exactly what's going on and uh, she's not sugarcoating anything. She's not guarding his ego at all. Yeah. She's just being very flat with him. And she... She's not putting up with his flirting. <laughs> uh, when he asks her, like, how long you been here? And she just gives him a very straight answer that uh, she says, I've been here for four years. First, it paid for tuition and then it paid for rent. And so that right there is a whole story, like in a sentence that tells you something about Laura, that she went to college, but she dropped out because four years is not long enough for her to get any kind of degree, right? Oh, Yeah. I didn't even notice that, but you're right. Yeah, she didn't graduate. It's so quick, but I appreciate it so much. And the way she delivers it, just kind of this deadpan. I'm not interested in impressing you. You're not impressing me. At the same time, we're getting Shadow, uh, his character, his exuberance, and also his skill. This is a pretty skillful palm, and I think he is pretty charming. I think that if he had ran into somebody who was not as smart as Laura, who wasn't as capable as Laura, that all of this would have gone off without a hitch, pretty much. Uh, He might have got caught by the pit bosses, but probably not by the dealer. I think this scene is amazing. Like, in terms of a meet-cute, we get a lot from both of the characters, and I think that they have a genuine connection. What do you... Did you like this scene or am I just going crazy? Like, <laughs> uh, I liked it a lot better the second time I saw it. I guess I think at the very end of the interaction, she gives this very wry smile that sort of reveals that she actually is enjoying their interaction to some extent or is at least amused by it. Mm-hmm. Even though she's acting really cool and not impressed by him at the surface level. And so to me, like that little wry smile at the end kind of redeems it. I had more of a problem with the parking lot, part two of the their conversation than part one at the table. Yeah. And I think just as like a small woman, I'm really sensitive to being approached alone in the middle of the night by a huge dude in an empty parking <laughs> lot. <laughs> I think he literally stands in front of her door. Yeah, and he does, he does like, get in her way a couple times yeah. that made me really uncomfortable. And so I think the first time my uncomfortableness with him coming on really strong and being a little pushy and kind of just, like, 
big and intimidating stopped me from being able to enjoy the scene as much. And then my second time through sort of how it all works, I was able to enjoy it more. But I do think that you can tell this scene was written by a man. Like, a man who's a good writer, but definitely a man. Because totally, a woman would not write this and just think that it's super cute. Yeah, yeah, the parking lot scene, for sure. Like, yeah. I feel uncomfortable every time I watch it. What I do like about the parking lot scene is the moment where he says, like, I should get an inside man. And the look on Emily Browning's face as she looks over his shoulder back at the casino and the plan starts to fall into place for the first time and she looks at him again. Yeah, and I think the fact, too, that they're they're having a conversation about robbing a casino and he's, I mean, yeah, he's hitting on her, but he's hitting on her very kind of indirectly and they're having a real substantive conversation, which I think redeems it somewhat as well. And she does seem invested in the conversation and interested. They go home awfully fast, though. Like, it it kind of doesn't totally make sense, like, from A to B. I actually, I bought that based on what we know about Laura's character and how much she likes risk and excitement and novelty and things that are new. I totally buy that she would invite a man home for a one-night stand that she just met, assuming... Mm-hmm. That she, you know, was attracted to him, had a good feeling about trusting him. I think that's a risk she would take. It's a risk that I think she would take, but it's a risk that I think she would be much more likely to take had they been having that conversation not in an empty, dark parking lot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, if that creep factor was removed, I would totally buy it. (laughs) But given that he, like, was kind of stalking her and waiting by her car... Like, that's total murderer behavior. Right. Like, I feel bad for Shadow that he doesn't realize that. (laughs) He is kind of oblivious through that. But I think that's a piece of his character. Maybe we could chalk it up to that. Yeah. I do like that the show's tone never feels like it is condemning Laura for taking him home for a one night stand. You say that maybe he's just oblivious. I don't know. Like, all of the black men that I have talked to, even the ones who are not as large as Ricky Whittle, they that is never something that they would be oblivious to. They are always super aware about how people are perceiving them and how they're intimidating people. Like, not just women, but people in general. So. Oh, that yeah. I can see what you're saying. That That totally makes sense. Yeah, I'm not sure. (laughs) Shadow's such a weird character, right? Yeah. Uh, In this whole situation, it's basically they need to get together as quickly as possible to to move the story along. So, I mean, it's, you know, they hook up, uh, which I think is is another really good scene and gives us a lot more insight into Laura as well. The way that she approaches the sex, the way that she deals with Shadow, her confidence, and the show's tone around that whole thing, you know, she's not being judged or portrayed as a slut, or at least I don't think she is. But how do you feel like the show treats her? Oh, I don't think the show is judging her at all either. And actually, I love the couch scene. That is the moment where I finally start to buy their relationship. Because, you know, like, whatever, vague flirting at the table and in the parking lot. But when she just slaps him on the face twice kind of like gently Mm -hmm. like clearly she's not trying to hurt him but just like send a little message 
and he totally gets what she's putting out, that moment of connection where they're having this, like, perfect nonverbal communication and they can basically read each other's minds about what she wants and how he can give that to her. I thought that was really well done. I think that's really important to, or, or the way that I read it was that, I, because I think that Laura is way smarter than Shadow in general. And I felt like it was almost a test that she was throwing out there to to be like, can you understand this without me explaining to you? And he got it. And so she was like, okay, we can continue. I saw it less as a test. Like, I think she would have slept with him anyway. But I think it was a test in the sense that she was sort of like trying to see if he was on her level. But I think she would have slept with him anyway. She just wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. Right. Exactly. Yes. And and like you said, that perfect nonverbal communication and that makes like everything hotter. And uh, yeah, that scene is great. And we were talking a a couple episodes ago about the female gaze and maybe someday we'll get to see a nice six pack on somebody and he like takes his shirt off and takes his belt off. So I don't know if that was what you were asking for. (laughs) Yeah, I would say there's there's some definite female gaze going on there. Mm hmm. Which is good, right? Because this is kind of all about Laura's POV this whole episode. Mm-hmm. So this is yeah. how she sees Shadow. And sort of jumping ahead just a little bit, um, mm-hmm. I love how much Laura doesn't get the male gaze treatment in this episode. And there was definitely a lot of potential for that. I mean, she's like giving a guy a blowjob in a car, you know, when at the very end she takes her shirt off and we sort of like see her from the back but it would have been the perfect excuse for the cinematographer to really try and sexualize her body and they didn't we get a lot of cutaways throughout the whole thing right we never really or the sex is like off in the distance of the shot like there's a lot of space between us and shadow and laura or robbie and laura it's not like the other scenes right like if we compare these sex scenes to say bilquis or to yeah. last week with uh salim and the gin like that one is uh pretty graphic and we're we're up close with the bodies the entire time but in this case it's not about that at all it seems to be more about their emotional connection and their intellectual connection which i think is really important Mm-hmm. That was m- the main thing for me in this episode was I feel like Laura is she says that he's too good for her uh, at one point, but I feel like she's too smart for him. Yeah, I guess either way, they are essentially incompatible, in my opinion, which is such a cool choice for the show to make. I don't feel like it's this way in the book. I feel like they were tight and in love and things just got messed up when he was in jail. But this is kind of broken in a more fundamental way. But I don't think it's broken because she's too smart for him. I think it's broken because she wouldn't be happy with anybody long term. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, can you unpack that a little bit more? I mean, neither one of them is smart in the traditional like book intellectual kind of way. But they're both actually pretty clever. So I feel like they are a good match, intelligence-wise. Okay. But Laura is just... I think she's a person who is fundamentally always going to be unsatisfied and always looking for something 
bigger, newer, more exciting. Or at the very least, based on the fact that she's living in the town where she grew up in her dead grandma's house, where she apparently is paying rent. (laughs) Oh, that's true. (laughs) Maybe her grandma died somewhere in the middle. But yeah, that like, she's a person who is not going to be satisfied by that life, regardless of who she's with. I went into the relationship being kind of skeptical, but they won me over. So you you buy them as a couple? Like you you feel like they do belong together and uh, and they're compatible? Yeah. I don't know that I do. I'm glad that we don't agree because yeah. <laughs> it, it will be more interesting. So some of the differences that I see between them, Laura has a lot of um, ambition. She wants things to move. Does she have a lot of ambition though? I mean, she on one level she does... But on the other level, she's not actually doing anything mm-hmm. that she's not taking the actions of an ambitious person. Yes, she has an appetite, right? But she doesn't do anything about it. I can't quite unpack what that is about, though. I mean, I guess I'm not saying that I think that Shadow is a perfect match for her. Like, she could probably find somebody who might be a better match for her than Shadow. I think at least on the personal, like, moment-to-moment level, they fundamentally, well, I was going to say they fundamentally understand each other, but they clearly don't, because <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> understand why she's sad. Um, or even that she is sad sometimes. Yeah. I think he's oblivious. No, okay, maybe you're winning me over to your side. <laughs> oh, no, I think we're breaking them up. I think they have I think they have the potential to be happy together. Like I don't think there's a fundamental mismatch, but I think that in any relationship you do have to put in the work and effort to build something together, and I think that in a different world maybe they could have done that together. Like if instead of Shadow getting caught if their casino job had gone off well and they had like moved to Chicago and then gone on and had adventures together and you know he took her coming to him and saying I'm unhappy like very seriously and used that Mm -hmm. as a way to deepen their connection together I could see the story panning out very differently and their relationship panning out very differently I mean it would probably well maybe it wouldn't be a bad book but it would be a very different book but I'm just (laughs) saying like I think their relationship is not fundamentally flawed Yeah, maybe. He does respond to her, right? She says, I want this. And he says, okay. And it is an interesting question. What if it had worked out? Would she have been satisfied with the result? And and what exactly is she looking for? Is she looking to get revenge in the casino? Does she want, or does she just want a lot of money? Or does she want like the thrill of robbing a place successfully? Is it like what she says to Robbie? Like, you could look back on your life and say that you fucked around and got away with it? Yeah, I think she's interested in having extraordinary experiences and being able to tell stories about them. And Shadow is just happy to be with her. And yeah. and I feel like he's making a motion to a more legitimate life. And he's very happy about it. And she's very unhappy that he's doing that. She took home a thief, and then he's turned into a boxing coach. (laughs) Yeah, okay, fair point. I don't know. Um, That's just how I see the two of them. And and I really like... That's not easy to do. I want to point out. People disparage like romance writers all the time. It is Uh very difficult to write a successful romantic couple who are interesting 
you know, to follow their story and have them be essentially incompatible. Because if they're totally compatible and everything works out, that's not a story. I mean, that's like, you know, that's just a boring thing of of people being happy. Like you could stand maybe five minutes of that. I think the way that these characters are calibrated from a writing standpoint is really, really smart. And the performances that it allows these two actors to bring and the chemistry that they have together is just fantastic. I, yeah. I was so pleased with everything in this episode. You're talking about thrill-seeking. And I think this is something that we also don't agree on when it comes to Laura. Um, There's the scene before she meets Shadow where the fly is buzzing around. She gets annoyed while she's eating her dinner and she gets the spray can of Get Gone, sprays it, and we get that scene of the fly dying. And then she kind of looks at the can. And in my mind, she goes to commit suicide in the hot tub. How did you see that? Well, now that you put it that way... Maybe I'm coming around more to your side again. I guess when I watched it, I didn't see it as suicidal at all. I just saw it as self-harm and Mm thrill-seeking. Kind of like a dysfunctional, though, you know. Oh, yeah, super dysfunctional, not healthy. She's seeking an escape from her boredom. But I didn't get the feeling that she actually wanted to die. I kind of thought that too when I rewatched it in terms of her, because she's like under the water and then she comes back up. And I'm like, well, if she wants to die, why doesn't why doesn't she just open her mouth and swallow a bunch of water and let it happen? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel a little bit uncomfortable talking in depth about suicide and what it is to be be suicidal because that's not something that I've experienced personally I don't imagine that killing yourself is ever really that easy that's true I think that Laura's character is inextricably tied to death in the story Mm -hmm. and to flies (laughs) right she starts with flies and ends with flies (laughs) That's true, isn't it? She gets the fly tape out because she wants to be presentable. Well, it's just funny that, yeah, she's like, has this whole thing with flies throughout the episode when she's alive. And then it just gets worse after she's dead. (laughs) Yeah. We never really get any idea in the book what she was like before she died. We only know her as a reanimated body. And she's a little bit off from the average person in the book uh, Mm -hmm. because of her situation. And so it was interesting to me that right off the bat, the writers chose to, in my mind, like the suicide just brings up the issue of death and ties it to Laura right away. And I thought that was an interesting choice that she's just always associated with death in the story. But I think that you have a good point that she is a thrill seeker. That's part of her attraction to Shadow, and it's definitely true. Like, she's robbing the casino. Like, that all lines up. Her thing with Robbie. What do you think about the scene with Robbie when he comes back the day after they hook up for the first time? And she she tells him no, in a way. Well, I love the way she calls him out. She's like, no, just say what you want. Do you want to fuck me again? I thought that was great. So you're asking me how I feel about it? As far as, like, issues of consent, because she says no and then she says yes? It's confusing to me. It makes me uncomfortable in the same way that the that the parking lot scene did. But 
at the same time, I feel like she is completely in charge of everything that's happening. You know, she's we could argue about if she's smarter than Shadow or not. She's smarter than Robbie, right? Like oh, she's yeah. got that dude <laughs> under control. Totally for sure. That scene didn't make me uncomfortable at all. Because like you said, I feel like she's in control the whole time. And I feel like her saying no to him is basically her saying, this isn't what you think it is. This isn't a romantic love affair. Like, I'm not invested in you that way. Because she only says yes after she makes him acknowledge, like, I'm waiting for Shadow. Which I think is a great line because it foreshadows the end of the episode where she spends an entire day just sitting completely still waiting for shadow that's awesome that's like that's what the title of the episode i think should have been is just waiting for shadow but they didn't ask me so (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome well that's going to be the name of this podcast oh yeah that's right actually no that's perfect i'm glad they didn't use it because now we can (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic um but yeah, no, I feel like when she changes her mind and says yes, from her perspective, she's saying yes to something very different than what he was asking her for initially. Do you think he understands that? I think he thinks he understands it, <laughs> but he clearly doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I, or maybe he does, but he thinks he can win her over oh, or something like so that. Shitty. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's the worst. Robbie's not a cool guy, everybody. Don't yeah. pattern your life after Robbie. He's not a good person. Well, and the other thing that I like about this relationship is I feel like it would be really easy to paint their affair in sort of a one-note kind of way. Like, she was missing her husband who was in prison, and then she, like, hooked up with this guy... And I think that the show does a really good job of making us feel for Laura and kind of understand why she's doing what she is and really distinguishing between her motivations and Robbie's motivations and showing us that there are multiple ways to cheat on your spouse, that it's not all the same thing. Right. And in that context, too, the normal default situation I feel like would be that she would be emotionally vulnerable and sad. And then she would be convinced by the man to, or seduced into cheating. But in this case, she's actually the one who's in control of everything. She's the one who allows him. And then the one who gives him permission the second time to continue the affair. So they preserve her agency. And he's the one who ends up getting emotionally invested over his head in sort of a, in a stereotypically feminine way. And then she breaks it off, which is like the opposite of what it would usually be, right? Yeah. So she's, she's in command through the whole episode, which I really appreciate. Let's look at Laura real quick in terms of storycraft, though. Okay. This is clearly her episode. She's the protagonist, right? Yeah. So what kind of conflict are we dealing with? The three primary conflicts are typically man versus man, uh, man versus environment, and man versus self. So this is not an environmental story. She's not like, she doesn't have to build a fire in the cold. So does she have an antagonist or is this an internal story? I think this is an internal antagonist story. It becomes slightly problematic because it's not super clear if dead Laura is the same as living Laura. 
she retains a lot of her personality essence as a dead person, but she also clearly is super different once she's dead, and her attachment to Shadow is really different from when she's alive and dead. I love that scene of her in the car with Audrey, where she's just like, love, love. She's like confused about her own tense and how she feels. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, like she clearly is now mystically attached to Shadow in some way that she wasn't before. Like in her vision, he's this bright shining sun that she's really attracted to and she's wholeheartedly devoted to him in a way that she wasn't before. So I feel like that's kind of an unsatisfying ending to an internal antagonist story, even though that's kind of what the first two thirds of the episode is. I mean, it works for me on an intuitive level, and I really like it, but I intellectually kind of on some level think that it shouldn't. That is exactly how I felt coming into this conversation. But now you have convinced me through your point of view that something else is going on in her internal struggle that actually solves that problem for me. Oh, really? It makes me... Yes, it makes me happy. I don't don't remember. (laughs) So the way that I saw everything was that they were essentially incompatible and would never work out like in a, you know, one true pairing kind of a sense. Uh, And then magically, they do. And I was like, I hate that. That's not good. (laughs) But if we look at it as her essential problem is what you said, that she is a thrill seeker. She wants her life to be bigger and more important. After she's dead, she has these super heroic abilities, right? She can rip these guys to pieces. She can kick a guy in the balls and make his skeleton fly out of his body, which is amazing and cool. Uh, She rips Shadow off the tree and she can get her limbs ripped off and continue you know, to walk around and not have any problems. She's kind of, she's not indestructible, but she's amazing and important. Yeah, that was so creepy when her arm like moved on the table and it wasn't even attached. (laughs) I love that through the whole thing. If you watch the arm after it comes off, it's always moving around. The fingers are moving. So it has, yeah, it has nothing to do with being connected to her body. It's not science. It's uh, it's magic. It's it's a cool detail. I like that they had that in there. I love what you're saying, and I totally agree with that. That, yeah, it does, in the end, even though her personality is a bit changed and her focus has changed, she has accomplished her goal of becoming a superhero and doing something that matters. And I think that it might make room in her life for her to allow herself to love Shadow more fully, in a way, if that makes sense. Oh, that because she's become the superhero, and because she's self-fulfilled in that way, that now she's able to love him more. I mean, they always say, right, like, you can't love other people if you don't love yourself first. Right. And, And if that's her problem, it's not that, you know, like, even if... It is a situation where she was suicidal and she wanted to die. Really, by the end of the episode, she's gotten everything that she wanted. She's dead. She is this exciting superhero persona. She is the person who saves Shadow when he can't save himself. So now she's become everything that she wants and she can love him completely and not be worried in any way about being inadequate or not deserving him. You know, in a way, I think... What bothers me about her being suicidal is that, um, 
disclaimer up front, like, mental illness is super complicated, and I'm not an expert on this, and I'm not going to get it perfect, but I feel like having her just have, like, a sense of ennui and being somewhat dissatisfied, I can live with that as just, like, having it make her a more interesting character, whereas having her be actually suicidal feels more heavy-handed and more like a legitimate mental illness. It just casts a different light on the rest of her character. Like, if she's so mentally ill that she's literally suicidal, I think that makes her less interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. I Yeah. So that's why I don't want her to be suicidal. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're, you're winning me over because if it is an internal antagonist situation, her not being suicidal, it makes her arc make more sense to me and it's more satisfying. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for solving the problems of this episode for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> I feel like it's been a group effort. <laughs> so I'm curious what you thought about Laura's interactions with Anubis in this episode. I was really glad that we had been introduced to him in the previous episode in the prologue with Mrs. Fadil, mm-hmm. because I think sort of being able to compare and contrast the way that Anubis interacts with Mrs. Fadil and the way that he interacts with Laura makes everything so much better because we are as surprised as Anubis is as Laura is just telling him to fuck off. Like, this is not how this is supposed to go. <laughs> <laughs> like, you you go in with, with more of an expectation, I think, than you would have had otherwise. Right. It still gave me questions. I was really surprised to see him show up, but... There is like an economy of character that I appreciate. Like we didn't get some other god that we don't know. Mm-hmm. So I liked that. So did you feel like his justification for being there, which is so he says that the circumstances of your death. Is that mean that when you give blowjobs and you die that you meet Anubis? I didn't know that that was his thing. I don't remember that from my comparative religion classes, but we never really talked about blowjobs. Um, um, well, so I had a couple ideas for what that might mean. Like, okay. Well, so he very specifically says circumstances of your death, but maybe what he really meant was like, she died not believing in anything. Cause he sort of, he justifies his presence with Mrs. Fadil by saying like, oh, you had faith in me as you were a kid. And Laura is very clear about. She doesn't believe in anything anymore, and she's, like, very specifically rejected all of her religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. So it sort of made me think about what you were saying in last episode about him being the jackal and the scavenger if he does clean up for all of the people who didn't believe in anyone else. Maybe oh, okay. that's why he's there for her. Or... Maybe circumstances of her death refers to something about her death not being totally normal. There's something like mystical, magical about it, which we can maybe go into later, I guess. So in episode two, we talked about the crow that's flying with the speed of the car as Shadow and Wednesday are driving across the landscape. And there's a ton of crow imagery in this episode, too. So the crows are sitting outside of Laura's house and watching her as Robbie comes over to have sex with her. And Mm -hmm. the crows are watching the car as Laura and Robbie are driving down the road to their death. So I think there may be something not quite 
natural about their death. I mean, you see her elbow sort of knock the gear shift, but it seems like maybe there's an invisible hand somewhere moving levers around. And we know that this world is full of supernatural beings and that there is a hand of fate over everything that's happening. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's out of line for us to notice the crows. They also show up in the barbecue scene where he's trying to, uh, where Robbie's trying to convince Shadow to come down and do Krav Maga with him. Oh, I totally and, missed uh, that. That's <laughs> And I was like specifically looking for crows and I didn't even notice them. That's how subtle they are. That's yeah, they're they're up on top of the garage and then they do they change the angle of the shot and when they do the crows move to be in the shot. Uh so they're they're there through the entire thing. They like really want to be noticed. Yeah. That's why I noticed them when they were in the shot when they moved. I was like, "Oh, wait a minute. Those are the those are the two crows. They're here." So, they're, you know, you're supposed to notice them and crows are associated with death. And, uh, you know, in some religions, the afterlife and stuff like that. So there's a bit of foreshadowing. There's there's a a theme of death moving through the entire episode. But they're definitely supernatural, like you say. I, I think that's a good thing to notice. And maybe it is connected to Anubis. Uh, not directly, but that their death had some kind of supernatural circumstance that allowed him uh, to step in. I like that explanation more than just... Uh, he's the guy that takes souls, I guess, because that's what we did in the previous episode. Well, it's just, it's awfully convenient that she ends up dying, so Shadow has no reason to stick around, because he's such a loyal puppy, there's no way he would have gone with Wednesday if she had still been alive. Uh, I like that when... We talked about her agency, and when she's dead and Anubis goes to get her heart, she slaps his hand away, and she's like, no, uh, let me judge myself. So she continues to be in control of every situation that she's in with uh, a man, uh, which is fantastic. I, I yeah. love it. And then she sees the hot tub and the spray can of Get Gone. And I wonder what you make of that. Do you think that she's going to have to be in that situation for all of eternity? Or is she like, is she going to be in darkness in there? What do you think is going to happen to her? I think she's just going to disappear into nothing. Like she climbs there and it's basically like a portal and she actually just ceases to exist. Ugh, that's horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I'm just imagining him opening that thing up and it's like a black hole that just swallows her or something. That's way scarier than what I was thinking. Um, she meets Anubis again when she goes back and he tells her, I'm, I'm coming for you. Like, this isn't over. And I think that's really important in the story. We talked about this last week with uh, Chernabog and shadow how he now has this death hanging over his head and it's going to change the context of his actions from here on out and it's kind of the same thing for laura even though she's dead she has this fate that is waiting for her anubis is going to send her into the abyss oh i love that i totally didn't see that parallelism when I was watching, but I really like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool, and it's something that is an innovation from the show. There's uh, no context for that in the book. We don't really know anything about Laura's situation like in the afterlife, what it's going to be like. Mm -hmm. So this is pretty cool for her character to have a fate and for her 
to have a reason to want to keep her body together and not to be destroyed. Yeah. There's one other thing that I wanted to talk about with Laura. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm kind of playing your role here where I was seeing things and like not really sure if I was reading too much into it. But there's (laughs) some really interesting, potentially things about her interacting with technology. So we know that this whole story is like a framing of the war between the old gods and the new gods that are all technologically based. Mm. And so when she's first in the casino and they give her the mechanical shuffling machine and she's just so pissed off about it. She's like, but I like shuffling. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, no wonder she's on the old gods side. She's like, totally (laughs) anti-technology but then she also just like has the tv on in her house all the time which seemed totally weird to me i don't know if it's is that like an anti-theft thing like she's trying to scare away robbers eagle point indiana seems like the kind of place where you don't have to worry about locking your door but it just seemed like a really weird detail given the importance of tvs in the story thus far oh, that's true yeah that's true i hadn't thought of that that implication um maybe it's just trying to make her look pathetic where she's like you know lonely or needs the noise or something i don't know i thought it was for the cat um i thought it was for dummy oh. so that he didn't feel alone because in the sex scene like it continues to be on and the cat is watching it um oh. and it's woody woodpecker which is a bird and it's a cat and then there's the whole cat thing of cats are guardians of your spirit and once the cat dies she becomes vulnerable to death but before that she like in my opinion she tried to commit suicide but she was not able to like maybe the cat was looking out for her they talk about it when they're in bed uh Uh, that the i'm skeptical (laughs) i'm so surprised um yeah so that's what i thought uh, yeah, so that's what I thought. But that's a good point um, that media could be looking in on this whole situation, right? Yeah. Uh, so maybe it's not just the crows. Maybe there are other supernatural forces that were pulling strings. And there, yeah, there could be more factions involved. I hadn't really thought of that. I don't know. To me, I think it's more likely that it doesn't really mean anything. And I'm kind of irritated at the fact that I'm distracted by it. But well, I'm not going to talk you out of it if you're <laughs> if you're seeing things. Um, there, there's this statue in their apartment that is also a symbol, right? It's the the Eiffel Tower is there, like this little bronze statue or something. Uh-huh. And every time that Shadow goes to his job, he puts his wedding ring on the top of it, and then he goes out of the house. And I can't figure out what it means after he's in jail. The camera focuses on it a couple of times without his wedding ring on it. And I don't know what it means. Like, is it about absence? Is it about, like, Paris is romantic? Um, I don't know what's going on there, but I feel like it's important. Because the camera does really linger on it. I guess the first time through, I was also kind of bothered by that and trying to make it into something super big and important but i think it really is just the reminder that shadow's not there and it's kind of the negative space of that his ring is missing and he is missing that reminds me of you saying that 
she was a, a hole where a character should be and he's kind of like he he's lacks this presence in her life and it's just like it was before him except yeah. that now she has this extra sadness because she has met him and married him and he's still not there yeah like it's even worse now yeah i don't know i, I if it was supposed to mean something, I don't get it, and I'm not sure that it was a successful narrative gambit on the on the writer and director's part. I think if it had just been a little bit more subtle and a little less heavy-handed, it would have worked. Yeah. Also, speaking of things we talked about in previous episodes, we've talked a lot about how Shadow is a really passive character initially, things just kind of happen to him and around him. But I really appreciated in this episode, he very clearly makes the choice to rob the casino and he emphasizes that and he's really taking responsibility for his choices. And I feel like maybe that kind of explains his passivity in the rest of the show because he made a choice and he had to live with the consequences and they were pretty shitty consequences and he's wants to be really careful before he makes other choices that might also impact his life in a similar way. Did you feel at all in that scene that she wanted to go to jail? No, I mean, well, okay. <laughs> I think she wanted to go to jail in the sense that she was just feeling guilty and she felt like she deserved to be in jail because it was her idea but I don't think she actually wanted to be in jail. I think she just felt bad that he was taking the fall for something that they had planned together mm. or, and that she had instigated. I couldn't read it. I felt like it, it could have been either way, but that, that one makes more sense. Uh, yeah. I like I like that he makes that decision too. I, I like that he has that idea to begin with and that it's a terrible idea and he's really bad at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This is consistent with Shadow's being a bad thief, right? Like when he goes into the bank uh, and he basically is like, I'm not here to rob a bank. Like he just freaks out the whole time. Yeah. Uh, You can imagine that he is a terrible criminal (laughs) from start to finish. So uh, even though he's got clever hands, um, he, he doesn't have the temperament to be a good thief, in my opinion. Do you think, I wonder what her plan was, right? Do you think we're going to unpack this at some point? Do you think we're going to find out exactly what happened? So in the scene where they're at the lunch table in prison and she says, like she keeps emphasizing over and over again, it was a perfect plan. There's no way it could have failed. I know that place inside and out. Somebody must have turned us in. Mm -hmm. I think it's like that invisible hand. And I think that might, come back later that the same entity or whatever it is that engineered her death in order to free up shadow may have also tipped the scales to get them caught and get shadow landed in jail in the first place so this is foreshadowing for an eventual reveal yeah okay i don't know that's like one of the funny things about having read the book but having read it like 15 years ago so i don't actually remember what happened (laughs) yeah well and and even that is only a clue right because the show is very different and they don't need to play it the same way and they they might even play off of our knowledge of the book to surprise us uh in different ways because laura is very very different in this adaptation 
which is a wonderful surprise. Yeah. So I want to ask you about the repetition of the scene where Shadow gets lynched by the technology dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, technology henchmen, whatever we want to call them. I think the technology dudes is the name of their band. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, because basically it was kind of an interesting choice that they made to play the scene from Shadow's perspective in episode one. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of confusing because you see, you know, the rope breaking and these guys getting taken down and there's like clearly something there, but it's invisible and we can't see it. And then now in episode four, we see it from Laura's perspective and we realize that she's the thing that's there that's doing these actions. And so I guess my question is, like, do you think that was effective narratively? And then also, is she supposed to be invisible to him at that point? Or is he just kind of like blacking out from being hung like is that was she actually invisible at that point or was that just a visual device do you think it worked to play the scene twice from the two different perspectives in each episode i think we had to explain it we they i mean man they just left it hanging out there right there's no explanation at all left it oh oh shit i did not mean (laughs) to do that (laughs) i really didn't (laughs) okay um they yeah so this was an unresolved mystery right um and they they have not explained it at all it's maybe it's possible that this is one of those situations where she's moving so fast that he can't see her oh from person to person like boom 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 i'm trying to think though that might not be right because if that was the case maybe the falling raindrops would be standing still and uh but she would be moving uh so there's probably evidence against that I think it's just that he's so out of it because he's, before they hung him, he also got beat up really bad. They had a crowbar and stuff. So he's beat to hell. He's got broken ribs and uh, contusions and all kinds of stuff. So he's just out of it, I think. So you're, so you think she's not actually invisible? It's just that Shadow doesn't see her, so it seems like it's an invisible person and the viewer can't know that it's her. So it's sort of left as a mystery to us even though she is really there she's not sort of like in a weird liminal space at that point i think that the storytellers are cheating basically because if she can turn invisible why does she hide from him later you know she gets in the hot tub when he comes home so if it's storytelling cheating there's two ways to interpret that word cheating there's like cheating and that they're breaking the rules of their own reality on a technical level or do you personally feel cheated? Like, do you appreciate that choice? Yeah, I, I felt dissatisfied with it when it happened in the first episode. You know, the rain is coming down so hard if there had just been some kind of silhouette, but we couldn't really tell what it was. But they are just exploding like bottle rockets and there's no explanation at all. You can't figure out what's happening. So I, I just feel like they hid it from us when it was not possible to do it in in any honest way yeah yeah i don't know i felt kind of dissatisfied at the time but now in retrospect it bothers me less because we got the answer and i think on repeat viewings knowing what i know i don't think it would bother me i think this is a cool action scene um and it's amazing where does her strength come from because like she didn't just come back from the dead she came back from the dead and she's super strength and crazy agility 
I mean, I guess that's Mad Sweeney's coin, right? I guess so. That's what it does, I guess, for at least for her. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it has anything to do... Okay, did Shadow invest the coin with anything when he threw it in there? Like, is he making her come back with the power of the coin? You know, like you make a wish and you throw it in a well. Did he make a wish and that wish brought her back the way that he sees her? Like she's amazing and can do anything? Huh, that's an interesting idea, but I don't buy it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know if I buy it either. I was, it's it's just something I thought of uh, while we were talking. She's definitely different. Her, I like that her strength is magical. That there's no good reason for her to be able to kick a guy in half or rip off arms. That we are just dealing with something straight up supernatural, and we're not trying yeah. to explain it in any kind of scientific way. That's the right choice. Yeah, I agree. And there's just there's so much happening right now that's unexplained. It doesn't feel that weird to add this one to that list. Okay, so saving the best for last. Let's talk totally. about Audrey. <laughs> uh, I did yeah. not expect Audrey to be my actual like number one favorite part of this TV show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I never saw that coming. She's so good. I just, mm-hmm. oh my god, the writing in that scene and the delivery and the performance is so good. Betty Gilpin is just amazing. Like she is just nailing that performance to the wall and owning it. I mean, she is fantastic. <laughs> she <laughs> she is so like emotionally vulnerable and hilarious at the same time. It's uh it's really fantastic. I think it's really revealing about their relationship that Laura had an affair with her husband. And in a sense, like, killed her husband. And yet, she's still gonna help her out and, like, drive her in a car to the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Right. You know, it's like, I'm really pissed, and I'm gonna yell at you, and we're gonna hash this out. But then at the end of the day, like, we're still best friends. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, and she's still gonna do it for her. I love the whole scene where she's sewing the arm on, and she's like, I don't give a shit about your feelings. What do you think? And I think that... That scene is the reason why she gives her the ride, because they kind of hash it out, right? Do you feel like they settle accounts in that scene? Yeah, I mean, I feel like clearly Laura paid for her mistake with her life, right? And Mm -hmm. so there's not a whole lot more that Audrey can ask from her. I feel like Audrey had to know on some level that Laura was kind of a shitty person. And she was surprised, but maybe on some level not really that surprised you don't really know somebody until they have pooped embalming fluid in front of you yeah (laughs) i do love how like physical and real being dead is for laura so like not only is her vision different this isn't just like being reanimated and happy and fun yeah and just like the real grossness of the embalming fluid coming out of all of her orifices like (laughs) It's it's so gross, and I kind of love it. <laughs> yeah, completely. Like, having to carry around your own arm is so brutal. <laughs> <laughs> That's hardcore. It's She's <laughs> she's like a, a heavy metal album cover or something when she's coming down the street. Uh, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, that's one of my favorite things about Laura from the book, 
is how she's kind of like the opposite of everything that would be typically female. Like she's not, her body is not sexually attractive at all. In fact, it's uh, repulsive. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Speaking of repulsive, her makeup is so good when she, before they like paint her. Mm-hmm. When she's hiding in the house. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. And I I love that um, Emily Browning went for this, right? Like it would be, it's kind of a risk uh, when you're a young actress to say, make me look as ugly and grotesque as possible. Uh, I feel like in the climate of Hollywood, that's a risky move. It could, it could hurt your career potentially, but I, I feel like this is only going to send her like into more important roles in the future because she is so great and so committed. I felt like in the first few episodes, we didn't see that much of her, but what we did see of her was very sort of like glorifying and typically feminine and really pretty and sort of like overblown Mm -hmm. pretty almost. And it did kind of bother me at the time, but it bothers me much less now knowing that we get to see both sides of that coin. And we're probably going to see more of her looking unappealing in the future. Yeah. Which I'm looking forward to. (laughs) And maybe we'll get more Audrey. Oh, I hope so. If this is the last time we see Audrey, I'm going to be very disappointed. (laughs) No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. What a surprise, right? She's so great. Uh, Time to highlight one way the show failed to live up to the book and one way that the show surpassed the book. And I feel like this week it's particularly hard to answer because most of what we saw in this episode was not actually in the book. Uh, yeah. So what's your answer? Um, I guess my biggest disappointment, we covered this a little bit. I don't understand why Anubis is the person to greet her in the afterlife. Um, it doesn't match her belief system. I don't know who greets you if you don't. Like, does Frederick Nietzsche show up and, and be like, <laughs> you believed in nothing. Here I am. Uh, I don't know. But I hope they explain it later. Um, maybe we find out more about Anubis and who he is allowed to uh, pick off in the afterlife. I don't know. Or maybe we find out more about the actual circumstances of her death, and that explains it. Oh, exactly. So I hope so. I hope that's the case. But you do love Chris. What's his name? Oh, Chris Obi is great. And (laughs) and the whole thing, like you said, that moment, he plays it so perfectly as the straight man where – He's giving that menacing speech of, I will, you will go into the darkness and I will forget that I ever knew you. And then he turns around and he's like, where the fuck? What? Oh, man. <laughs> and then he's like, you, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And we see the transformation. We finally uh, transforms from the dog form. But with him is his friend, Mr. Ibis. And I don't know if you recognize him, but this is the black academic that we've been waiting for since the first episode. Oh my god, you're so right. I totally didn't recognize him because it's been, what, I guess three episodes at this point, but you're so right. Right, yeah. It's just two seconds where we see him, you know, before he he starts talking. And we don't really get a reference to that office or anything. But if if you read the book, then you know that he's the one who's writing all the coming to America bits. It's kind of cool that they folded him in from the very first moment. Maybe that's why Anansi seems to know the future, because that wasn't actually how it happened. But that's like how Anansi tells it to Mr. Ibis now. 
and yeah and maybe the gods are actually like dictating their experience to him in some way and and he's just taking it down so it's like anansi telling ibis like oh i knew everything that was gonna happen or something like that yeah but yeah, yeah. yeah oh i like that so much i feel like that really saves the the prologue of episode was that episode two yeah because mm-hmm. i really loved it so much as its own thing but it didn't really fit with the rest but now i can sort of like headcan in that yeah. yeah, so I'm going to cheat this week. I'm going to pick something that I didn't like that technically is unrelated to the book. And this is totally a small thing, but the way that they rolled out the mechanical shuffling machine is the first time that I've really been pulled out of the episode. Like, come on, you're a fucking casino, you have this whole thing down to a science, and you're going to roll out a brand new shuffling machine in the middle of a shift without training <laughs> your staff on it? Like, come on. <laughs> There would have been, like, weeks of memos and meetings and whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. They would have just, like, handed it to her while she was on the floor and be like, good luck. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I guess that doesn't make any sense. I hadn't thought of that, but you're totally right. That's not how the service industry works. Yeah, that's not really how any industry works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's your uh, happiest surprise, biggest improvement? I mean, I've gushed enough about this whole episode. I think the entire concept is an improvement over Laura from the book. But to narrow in on one thing, I think that Laura is working class in this adaptation Mm -hmm. and that she was the inside man on the casino is really great. In the book, she's a travel agent. So that's more of a professional white collar position and it's something that's kind of anachronistic now i mean there are still travel agents right but it's a much uh, smaller there... industry <laughs> there's tra- i feel like there's for rich people agents... there probably is well there's travel agents for institutions right like when i a lot sometimes when i travel i have to go through the travel agent for my university but Yeah, or they might work for a corporation and get you a discount and stuff like that. But she is an independent travel agent in the book, um, which is convenient for different plot reasons. But I love that she's working class, that she is uh, scrappy in this story. Mm -hmm. I think uh, everything about that is way more interesting than her being uh, a professional. What, What did you like over the book? Yeah, like you, I think basically the fact that this episode exists at all is a big improvement over the book. I liked the deeper look into why she cheated and sort of that inverse gendered take on infidelity that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that wraps up this episode. I'm Anya, aka Strangely Literal, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's strangely than L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler, and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com for news and episode reviews. If you'd like to leave us feedback, if you have any sweet memories or naughty little secrets that you want to share, you can visit <laughs> shadowsandshamblers.com slash contact, or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. And join us next week for episode five, Lemon Scented You, and they use the hashtag Shamblers to live tweet with us on Sunday night. And don't forget to rate and review our show on iTunes. 
Because we have a smart plan. We have a perfect plan. And we will never get caught. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a creative commons non-commercial share alike license. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the recap. Nah, that's way too cheerful. <laughs> let's get into the recap. That's right. <laughs> After a touching reunion with Audrey. <laughs> I don't know why you I like messed that? that up. I added that in there. <laughs> or no, sorry, that was her with Aubrey. Audrey. Blah. Audrey. <laughs> um, I love sorry. that scene of her. Because we have a smart plan. We have a perfect plan. We will. No, that's not what I wrote. <laughs>